hello and welcome. You're listening to Lore and Legend, bringing you myths, legends and fables from world folklore and mythology. We tell stories the way that they're meant to be told, in the style of traditional storytelling and enriched with traditional music and dramatic audio work. This series of Lore and Legend is called The Gates of Dream, exploring tales of encounters between the heroes and heroines of Greek myth, the gods and spirits of the Greek underworld, and the lands of dream, death and darkest fate. This episode of Lore and Legend comes to you thanks to the contributions of our Patreon subscribers, story folk Christy Carson, Paul Jackson and Sean Powell. Thanks to all of them for their generosity and enthusiasm in sharing our stories. If you'd like to consider joining them and supporting the podcast by becoming a patron, visit our website and click support us. In this, our third episode, the king undertakes a dangerous voyage to save his kingdom from a curse, and his wife, the queen, receives a visit from Morpheus, the mysterious prince of dreams. From storyteller Sebastian O'Dell, and featuring the music of Michael Levy, Sakilo, and Caleb Hennessy, this episode is The Dream of the Drowned King. At night, the dreams flood across the walls. From the gates of the sun, they spread out over the eastern sea, and unseen, they cross the northern plains, and finally spill out across the Aegean. can get as far west as the islands of Ithaca or Cephalenia. They pass through the kingdom of Trachis, free of bloodshed, the land of King Caix and Queen Alcyone. They ruled well and justly, it is said. What dreams enter their palace at night? While we slumber and dream of strange beasts or humiliating misfortune, What dreams come to the bedside of the king and queen? Queen Alcyone woke sharply, grasping the bedsheets around her and crying in alarm. Her husband, King Caix, stirred and saw his queen in distress. He opened both eyes and looked up at her. My darling Hera, he said, what's wrong? Hera, the name of Zeus's wife in Mount Olympus was an affectionate name that Caix used for his wife. She, in turn, might call him Zeus, but now she was in no mood for such indulgences. Just now, I had a horrible dream, she said, in which you were lying on the earth and four horses came charging over you, rode by four brothers. One by one, they trampled you until... until there was nothing left of you. It is surely a foul omen. It may be, Caix said, and it may not, and we may not know the difference. Have I told you the tale of the father of dreams? Alcione shook her head, and so Caix told the tale, to assuage the fears of his wife. 
She was not convinced exactly, but it brought her comfort to hear him speak, and she lay down until she drifted back off to sleep. Queen Alcyone stood looking out to sea. The light was failing, and she could see very little past the traces of land before her. She had seen no ships, though she had stood here since the sun rose above the water. Now the last of the day's clouds thinned and departed, and revealed the full moon. The second moon to have waxed to its height since her dream, and since her husband had left her here on the shore. He had given his word he would be back before today. My warnings were not for nothing, bold Caix, she thought. Were there not enough omens for you to see what lay ahead? For her pride, Caix's niece Hione had been struck down by Diana, and in grief her father, Didalion, had thrown himself from a cliff, only to be transformed miraculously into a hawk as he fell. Caix had known of these things. In fact, it was because of them that he had set to sea to consult Apollo's oracle for clarity on his family's plight. Had these been ordinary times, he would have sought the wisdom of the great oracle at Delphi, which was only a short distance over land. However, that way was now controlled by bandits. And so he had sailed for Claros in the lands of Ionia. It was a dangerous journey, for he had to venture far from the sight of shore, out on the black waters of the Aegean Sea. In the face of these dark signs, it was nothing short of reckless. And then there was the dream. When Caix told her his intent, Alcione realised that this was what her dream had been warning of. Those four horses with the four winds, the winds that would seize and destroy his ship when out at sea. She begged him not to go. Don't think that you're safe, she had cried, just because my father is Aeolus, god of the winds. I know the winds better than anyone. I stood for the longest time in my father's house, watching them wreak havoc across the world. Once they are released, no man or god may tame the winds. Yet as ever, Caix did not listen. He reminded her that he too was the son of a god, the morning star, who would guide him safely to Ionia. He swore it would be no more than two moons until he returned. Was he so sure that they held favour among the gods of Olympus? Alcyone had made many offerings to Hera, for she was the goddess of marriage, that her husband would once more return to her arms, to see the two of them once more sat before their fire and laid lovingly beside each other in their bed. Yet it seemed these prayers went unheeded. Caix had not returned. But that night, she dreamt that he had. She heard his footfall on the threshold, then coming up the stairs to their chambers. She ran along the hall to meet him, but as she did, servants and bureaucrats surrounded her, halting her progress, tugging at her arms. They called her to her duties, reported on affairs at the palace, all holding her back with distractions. But she shook them off and ran to the door to welcome her lord home. When she reached the bottom of the stairs and threw the door open wide to find that there was no one there, she stood in disbelief. 
and then the sound of his voice floated close to her and brought with it the soft smell of his body. But then the wind whipped it from her and cast it away along the hillside. She awoke alone in her bedchamber. As she lay in the empty darkness, she tried to soothe herself. She recalled the tale that Caix had told, and she told it to herself now. The young god, Apollo, leader of the muses, sought in his vanity to raise his light high above the other gods. He begged his father for the gift of prophecy, and as ever, with Zeus's favourite, his desire was granted. And so the greatest oracles of mankind were his. His were the visions that the greatest of men looked to for counsel. Humanity duly revered the wisdom of Apollo and exalted him more highly than any other. Truly, he now stood above any man or god. Or so he believed. Zeus, you see, does not tolerate presumption above himself. And so he created dreams which spilled from the gates of horn and appeared to people in their sleep. Indeed, each night they provided people with sight of what will occur. Possessing prophecy themselves, humanity no longer needed the oracles of Apollo, and they began to forsake his worship. Do not think that this is the end of the tale, though, Caix had said, for we still need to seek the wisdom of the oracles. At their birth, Certainly, dreams would tell us all we might need to know, without fault, as a reckoning upon Apollo's pride. Yet Apollo cast himself on his knees before his father's throne and wept for forgiveness. Seeing order restored once more, Zeus forgave his son, and in his mercy made another kind of dream. This dream was the same as its predecessor, but it emerged instead from the gate of ivory, from which comes deceit and falsehood. Humanity was therefore given the gift of prophecy, but given the poisoned chalice of deception too, and no means to tell the two apart. And so, when we wish for truth and clarity, we must still seek out the oracles. The queen finished her tale, word for word, as Caix had told it to her. She looked to her side and saw it still empty. There was nothing to do but wait for sleep to come if Hypnos would grant it. When Caix began his journey, it had seemed that all was well. A bright sun shone in the sky, the water was calm. He took it as a sign that Poseidon gave blessings to his voyage. He smiled indulgently when he thought of his wife's fears. But perhaps Poseidon was merely luring him out. Gradually, the ship pushed on, away across the Aegean, until the land was far from view, until they were out in the great open sea. The day waned, the night stars took up residence in the sky. Then, only then, the winds arose. They blew foul and they would not be placated. They came from the north and then from the south and from east and west alike. The waters churned, waves of great size began to form and roll beneath the ship. The crew shipped their oars, they took in sail, but the storm was so violent and unpredictable that the captain soon had no idea what orders to give. 
Caix beseeched Zeus, father of storms, to calm the sky and seas. His prayer was heard. But Zeus remembered how this petty king had elevated himself, mocking the dominion of the gods. He had insisted that his wife call him by no name lesser than that of Zeus himself. So Zeus stood aside and did nothing. What is the matter, he called. Can't the lord of storms even calm those around his own ship? So the storm raged. The sea rose so high, it seemed to break the barrier with the sky, or maybe the sky itself had fallen into the waves. The ship sank into the eye of a terrible maelstrom. The sailors could no longer fight the unceasing wrath of the waves, and the ship was tossed, turned, and finally cut apart. Caves clung to a chunk of the deck that had been torn off and thrown haphazardly into the driving waters. He was borne on by lashing torrents, barely able to see in front of him. He had no means to reach the ship, no ship left to sail, and no earthly direction he could possibly sail in. He didn't even know up from down, and couldn't have guessed which way it was to his home in Trachis. He thought of Alcione, and grief washed through him, that he should die so far from her arms. Just as the final wave rose to overwhelm him, he offered a final prayer to Poseidon. He had nothing. He was at the mercy of the god, but he pleaded that his body should find its way back to Trachis, to the arms of his wife. And then darkness and driving water. Once the ship and all her crew had passed beneath the waves, the darkness ebbed away and the dawn broke. The morning star rose in the sky and took a single look at the wreckage. Because he could not leave the sky, he cloaked himself in cloud and hid himself from view. Alcione rose from her troubled sleep. It was another day without her husband. She must keep her mind occupied, so she set about her duties, keeping the palace in his stead. And in any spare moment, she returned to weaving fine clothes for him to wear upon his return. The uncertainty was the worst part. Would she wait another week or another year? If he died, or pirates seized his ship, would she ever hear of it? She could not keep these thoughts at bay forever. They would worm their way in until she couldn't carry on her work. All that she could do in these times was to have the servants prepare an offering to the gods, praying for his return. To her father, Aeolus, to still his winds. To Poseidon, to make peaceful the crossing of the Aegean. Most of all, though, still, to Hera for the return of her marriage as it should be, lord and lady at home together. 
To these gods, she burned fine incense to waft its way up through the air until it found its way to Mount Olympus, where it would sweeten the air they breathed, that they would know that Queen Alcyone had brought this sweet savour to them. They must pause and consider her plight, and make sure that she was not forsaken in her hour of need. Indeed, the incense did float from the Megaron, and soon reached Olympus, but there was nothing that Poseidon or Aeolus could do to smooth the voyage of a ship that has long since sunk to the depths of the wine-dark sea. Hera too heard her prayers, just as she had long before Caix's tragic fate. But as Zeus had for the hapless king, Hera remembered Alcyone's presumption to have taken her name. If you truly are the goddess of marriage, Hera mocked, bring your husband home yourself. Truly you could not stop him leaving to begin with. Alcyone's desperate pleas had given her some satisfaction. Yet as time went on, and the pleas continued, unabated, even intensified, Hera's mood began to change. No matter what she did or where she went, the incense from Alcyone's fire hung about her like a thug. It clung to her garments and seemed to infect the very stones of Olympus itself. Finally, she could stand it no longer. Enough, she said. I shall take no more pleas of false hope. She would not validate Alcyone's prayers by going to Trachis herself. Instead, she sent for Iris, her messenger, and sent her out on a unique task. On the outer edges of creation, near to the land of the Chimerians, a long dark cave stretches down into the earth. At its mouth, where herbs and poppies grow, the land waits in near dark. Mist clings to the edges of the water. Dawn hovers nearby, but the earth never wakes with the activity of life. The abiding quiet gave way to profound silence as Iris stepped into the cave. All the sounds she had not noticed, the wind on the hillside, the waves lapping at the rocks, all dropped away. The air was heavy with the dust you brush from the corners of your eye each morning. Iris travelled through it and it weighed upon her eyes, lulling her down towards sleep. Just as all noise had vanished, the silence absolute, a very faint sound began in the cavern's depths. The slow, rhythmic trickle of the Lethe. Iris listened, and everything else seemed to fade away. Cares, memories, all thought of the lands outside, just dissolved into the effortless babble of the river of forgetting. Everything was gentle and soothing, easing her mind into its rightful place in... Iris shook herself, 
just as she was about to succumb. There are few who can travel this way but for the will of the gods. So she called to mind Hera's request, and with it she could move forward once more. Slowly, painstakingly, she soldiered on until she approached the throne of sleep. The throne of sleep is no regal, ostentatious chair. Instead, a couch sits a little above the floor, spread with all kinds of blankets and feathered cushions, and Hypnos, the god of sleep, sprawls gracelessly on top of them, snoring obnoxiously. Iris stood before the throne, then reached down and brushed her robe. Dreams, unseen in the darkness, fell from it. Dreams clinging to dreams that had settled themselves all over her. Light breathed its way through the gaps. Her light, the light of Iris, goddess of the rainbow. She brushed more and more of them away, and her light streamed forth, bathing the throne of sleep in its glow. Hypnos, she calls. Hypnos, god of sleep, who quietens the world, who brings peace to the mind, who renews the body for the tasks of each new day. Hear me now. Sleep lifted his head just slightly, enough to acknowledge her, but no more. He murmured gently. Though truly, he knew the purpose of her journey as she had first set foot into his lands. The Lady Hera commands you. Send forth a sign to the Queen of Trachis. Tell her what has befallen her king, and leave her in no doubt to save us all from her empty prayers. Queen Alcyone turned over in bed. She looked down at the foot of the bed and cried out twice. Her first cry was for joy, because her husband was stood before her. No question this time, no sounds misheard halfway across the palace. Him, in his full form. Her next cry was of horror. Caix was pale. His eyes showed no sign of life though they were fixed directly upon her. His limbs hung from him, the muscles of his face held no expression. He looked less like a man than a poor imitation of one. Water dripped from his hair, his beard, onto his chest and arms and ran in rivulets until it streamed to the floor or onto the bed covers. He wore nothing, but strands of seaweed clung to his body and draped across his forehead. Queen Alcyone was not ready for this. She backed away from him on the bed, drawing the covers up to her. You are a false vision, she cried, turning from him and trying to still her rattling heart. This is a dream, and there are many falsehoods in dreams, for it is the will of Zeus that only oracles... But then Caix spoke. Has death changed me so much that you don't know your own husband? Caix demanded. Please, I am dead. Do not ignore me the last time we shall ever meet in these lands. His voice was unmistakable. 
she would have recognised it from the far side of a crowded hall. Despite her best efforts to cling to any shred of doubt, it fled from her mind. She turned round to look at him. There is no other way to tell you, so listen to me now. A storm came while we were out in the depth of the Aegean. The ship is lost, and me with it. You must not live in false hope, Alcione. None of your prayers can ever bring me home. Now go, prepare my funeral rites. Do not let me go to Tartarus unmourned. Her worst fears were realised. After so many prayers, so many days survived through the simple hope that she would one day have him back. Her mind rebelled, for a steadfast and determined queen could not allow this. She had held everything together for so long, she could not crumble now and allow her king to be dead. But you're here now, she said. This is a good day. No, a glorious day. Our, our wait is over. She got up, came to the end of the bed with her arms outstretched. We are reunited, husband and wife, and we'll never part again. She placed her arms around his sodden, bedraggled form. But it dispersed. She nearly fell right through him. No, Alcione. You are living. Your home is here, in Trachis. But mine is not. You cannot know the lands to which I am bound. Though desperately she tried to reach for him again, he pulled away to the side and began to drift toward the wall. No, stop. I will go with you. You left without me once. I won't let you do it again. But Caix's shade had reached the wall before she could get to him and passed straight through it. Alcione hurled herself against that wall and when she dropped to the floor, she began to beat upon it until her hands bruised from the punches. The shade drifted outside the palace. Once out into the fields, he shook off the form of Caix and let it float off into the winds. He coughed and the king's voice followed the apparition away. Then Morpheus, son of Hypnos, assumed his wings once more. The sons of sleep can imitate many forms, but none can take the form of men like Morpheus, and weave a dream as lifelike as the shade of Caix just was. There was a reason his father had picked him, of all his brothers, to carry the message to the queen. Noiselessly, he rose to the sky and returned to the lands of his father. Alcione stood before the sea once more. She still gazed out, though she knew that Caix was not coming home. There was nothing else for her to do. Her life as Queen of Trachis vanished once the funeral rites were completed for her king. Walking from the palace to the shore, she cast off that life until she came down to the water's edge as Alcione, nothing more.
She waded out into the waters and they soaked up her clothes until she was submerged to her waist. Poseidon, she cried, you have taken everything from me. I can ask nothing more of you. There is nothing you can give me. But I now give you all that I have left, my life, to do with as you will, since none of my offerings would suffice. It seems our family has lived and died in the displeasure of gods. May it all end now. And she lay her body down upon the waters. Slowly, by ebb and flow, she drifted out to sea. Is this the end of the tale? Was there really nothing more that Alcyone would have from the gods? For another prayer had been uttered on a shredded chunk of ship's deck far across the Aegean Sea. And as Alcyone floated aimlessly on the waters, she collided with something. She looked around and realised that her final desire had been granted, one that she had not even known herself. King Caix had come home to the land of Trachis, and somehow their bodies had met in the currents. He was not alive. He had died in the waves that had reached up into the sky and eaten the sun. But if you had seen the way that his wife gripped his still form, you'd think it made no odds to her. Her husband had come home at last. Had you been stood on the shoreline, you would have seen something odd happen just then. The two bodies locked in this embrace disappeared from the water, and two halcyon birds rose from the surface and flew up into the sky. Maybe you would have wept, maybe you would have rejoiced, or maybe you would have shook your head and said that clearly, this must just be the way with this family. The dream of the drowned king is based upon the myth of Ceyx and Alcyon, known mainly from the poem Metamorphosis by the Roman poet Ovid, but also found in a work by Hesiod and in a philosophical dialogue called Halcyon. In the medieval period, a version was told by Chaucer in his Book of the Duchess. The story is considered remarkable for its depictions of a loving and romantic relationship between the principal characters, in contrast to many of the unhappy unions portrayed in Greek myth. The story also raises questions about the role of providence and justice in human affairs, as the attitude of the gods towards the sympathetic protagonists is typically callous and petty. Trachis was a kingdom and city-state in the region of Thessaly, in the north of ancient Greece. It was located to the west of Thermopylae, and north of the sanctuary of Delphi. It was famous for being located near the foot of Mount Etna, where the Greek hero Heracles died, and being the place where his descendants settled. The city of Trachis was later conquered and resettled by the Spartans, 
It was a waypoint for the Persian army during its march to the confrontation at Thermopylae during the Greco-Persian War. The oracle which Kiex sails across the Aegean Sea to reach was the oracle of Apollo Clarius in the sanctuary of Claros, on the western coast of Ionia in Anatolia. It was an important religious centre, alongside the sanctuaries at Delphi and Didyma elsewhere in the Greek world. In the Roman period, Pliny the Elder remarked that at Colophon, in the cave of the Clarian Apollo, there is a pool, by the drinking of which a power is acquired of uttering wonderful oracles, but the lives of those who drink it are shortened. The story concludes with the transformation of Alcyonian Caics into Halcyons, a mythical bird which is sometimes identified as being the kingfisher, although some also say that Caics was transformed into a different bird, a tern. The ancients believed that the Halcyon made a floating nest of fish bones in the Aegean Sea, and that Aeolus calmed the waves while the Halcyon was brooding over her eggs. The Halcyon would lay its eggs over seven days and brood on them for the other seven. The earliest sources stated that these days lay either side of the shortest day, the winter solstice, and would bring 14 days of calm weather. The Greeks called these the Halcyon days. In Ovid, the transformation occurs as Caix's body washes toward the shore of Trachis. But in the earlier Halcyon dialogue, Alcyone is changed into a bird so that she can search the seas for her husband's body. The Halcyon, or kingfisher, was a symbol of the faithful woman or wife, as is clearly the case in the philosophical dialogue where the character of Socrates says he will relate the legend to his own wives to inspire them. According to Elian and Plutarch, the female Halcyon was devoted to its mate, nursing the male in old age and sickness, and singing a lament when it died. It therefore represented a paradigm of feminine love and care for the family. Speaking of the Halcyon's nest, Plutarch writes, Of many possible forms, this alone cannot be capsized or even wet its cargo. Although the Halcyon days of the Greek myth originally only symbolised a temporary respite from the storms of the sea, the phrase Halcyon days has become a symbolic term in itself to describe any prolonged period of peace and prosperity. This episode also includes a variant of the story about the origin of dreams we heard in the last episode, where they were birthed by Mother Earth, but confused by the decree of Zeus. Having heard the matriarchal origin of dreams from Penelope, this episode sees King Caix offer a different, patriarchal version, in which Zeus is responsible both for creating true dreams and then false dreams to teach his son a lesson. This is a version of the story which is found in the fables of Aesop, and is a good demonstration of the way in which stories about the new gods were always usurping and overwriting the powers and narratives about the older, more primal gods, so that Zeus came to be the creative and ordering power at the centre of the Greek cosmos, a power which is wholly male and patriarchal. When the Mycenaeans came to dominate Greece, they explained the decline of the older gods within their myths, as resulting from their overthrow by Zeus and the Olympians. Subsequent to this, some of the older gods seemed to be imprisoned, while others persisted but with reduced sovereignty or significance. The gods of death, sleep and dream were described in the cosmogonies as direct descendants of these primordial gods, 
and often their powers and offices seem to have been co-opted or assimilated into the power of the Olympian gods. Hypnos was lord of the realm of sleep, but often it is Hermes who actually wields the power of sleep over mortals and comes to collect the souls of the dead. Hypnos was also brother to Thanatos, the god of death, and that god too was eclipsed by Hades as ruler of the underworld. We also meet Morpheus in this story, depicted as the most important dream spirit. The Greek word Morpheus meant form or shape, and was used for the god by Ovid, although there are no prior sources for this name for the god of dreams. While in other Greek myths there is only one god of dreams, Oniros, in the Metamorphoses, Morpheus is one of a triumvirate of dream gods, Morpheus, Isolos, and Phantasos. These spirits have the power to create different kinds of illusions, humans, animals, and inanimate objects, respectively. Morpheus was preeminent among them as a dream messenger, as the god who could take on the form of shades or oracular authorities. In a link with the gates of dream, Morpheus was sometimes described as carrying a horn from which he would dispense dreams. A description in Richard Burton's Anatomy of Melancholy described the god as wearing a black and white cloak and keeping two boxes of dreams, of which one was made of horn, the other ivory. In some ways, the appearance of Morpheus in the shape of Caix is an anomaly because of its illusory nature. Elsewhere in Greek myth, the dead do appear to the living in sleep, but this is usually described as a genuine visitation from the shade of the departed person. A famous example of this is the appearance of Patroclus to Achilles after his death in the Iliad. Visitations from gods or real individuals who bore important messages to the sleeper were commonly reported in the ancient world. The historian William Harris argues that this epiphany style of dream has gradually been lost over time as the role of dreams has changed in our culture, gaining naturalistic explanations instead of needing to invoke visits from spirits and as we expect less and less that gods will come to deliver messages to great men. However, the illusion spun by Morpheus does play on the commonly ambiguous nature of dreams and phantasms in these myths, as appearances which may be real or deceptive. In Erebus, part of the Greek underworld, dream spirits mingle with the shades of the dead themselves, who are often said to have a dream-like nature and appearance, blurring the distinction between the two. Another minor messenger deity, Iris, appears as Hera's handmaiden in this myth. She was a goddess of the sky and sea, and was thought to bear water up from the oceans to the sky and replenish the rains. The Greek word Iris for rainbow was close to the word Eris for messenger. The idea that Zeus ignores Caix's plight, and Hera sends her message to Alcyone simply because they are irritated by the humans, plays into the idea, often seen in Ovid, that the gods are indifferent to our lives and their motivations are both arbitrary and selfish. But another way of seeing this episode is precisely as a story in which the gods enforce the cosmic order by ensuring that the queen can appropriately mourn her dead husband and perform the necessary funeral rites which the dead require to pass into Hades. The gods are shown as fickle, quick to punish hubris and transgression, but in the end, may also be seen as capable of belated compassion.
Next week, a master physician draws the wrath of Zeus when he meddles with the law of life and death itself. You've been listening to Lore and Legend, The Gates of Dream, Episode 3, The Dream of the Drowned King. Our story today was interpreted and performed by Sebastian O'Dell. This episode featured music by Michael Levy, Sakilo, and Caleb Hennessy. Check the episode notes to find links where you can hear their music and support their creativity. Additional sounds and music were sourced from the community at freesound.org, and full audio credits are available at www.lawandlegend.co.uk. For news about upcoming episodes and more info about our stories and their sources in world folklore, you can visit us there at the website or follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Of Law and Legend. If you like what you hear and you want to hear more, please consider a one-time donation through Ko-Fi or supporting the podcast regularly through our creators page on Patreon. You can find the links to all of those things on our website. And once again, thank you for listening, Story Folk, and I hope that you're all keeping safe out there.